yeah, it's just about that. Feminism is not something which you pick up and wear like a mantle. And it's not even feminism, really. Is it? I mean, I think it's just, yeah, the, the assertion of who you are in your time and place. And it's in most women. Hello and welcome to Bosom. I'm Lucy Hicks-Beach and this is a podcast where I want to find out how women, non-binary and gender non-conforming people have influenced and shaped our thoughts and lives. In a world where women's contributions are often disregarded, I want to learn more about how and how much they have impacted the people we are and the society we live in. To do this, I'm talking to guests about how people of marginalised genders have influenced their lives, identities and understandings of the world. Today I'm speaking to actor Claire Perkins. Having studied at Rose Bruford, she's had a wide and varied career in TV, film, radio and theatre. She is known for her roles as Denise in Family Affairs, Ava Hartman in EastEnders and most recently in BBC series Outlaws, as well as many, many more. She's performed at the Royal Court, the Young Vic and the National Theatre, and notably as Cynthia in Lynn Nottage's Sweat at the Donmar Warehouse, and as Amelia in Amelia at the Globe. She is currently starring as the title character in The Wife of Wilsdon at the Kiln, Sadie Smith's adaption of The Wife of Bath. Hello, Claire. Hiya. Thank you so, so much for coming on to Bism. Um, I know that you've spoken about, I've kind of read in your interviews, about the importance of radical feminist theatre groups in the kind of 60s, 70s and 80s, when you were in drama school, leaving drama school, I think. Groups like the Women's Theatre Group and the Theatre for Black Women. And I was wondering now, as an actor in 2021, do you think those groups... How do you see them and their effect now? And do you kind of still feel some kind of connection to those grassroots feminist groups? I mean, I mean, I do feel a connection to them. Um, I'm probably going to be working with one of the women I worked with. I'm going to do an audio play next week. But, you know, most of those people, most of those women are still working. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it's because of those theatre groups. But um, Adjua Ando, who's in, she's in Bridgerton. I watched her before I left drama college, I think in a, I think possibly with the women's theatre group. Um, a lot of those people went on to be writers, directors, producers at the BBC, audio drama. So I suppose they gave, they gave us somewhere where we could be ourselves and practice our craft, I suppose. And because an actor is a storyteller. So if you're able to tell stories that have immediate meaning and relevance to the people in the audience that's a chance that you're not going to get well I don't know if people got it beforehand but a lot of those people you know people were making their own companies in those days devising shows and stuff so um yeah I suppose we had a voice from when you left drama school and when you kind of started your acting career to now do you feel like the the stories that have been available have they become more relevant to you or do you think have they has that changed in any way um I think well I've always been lucky I've always been a lucky actor and I left drama college to because I had a job you need an equity card in those days that was 1985 yeah I think I mean I've just been really lucky so obviously I do recognize that uh full representation wasn't there and there was always a need for more diversity in the arts but um I've been fortunate enough to work in most genres and play like some really interesting characters one of whom is on my list so in a way two are on my list but in a, in a <laughs> yeah. um 
So what I've tasked you with is I've asked you to pick five women, non-binary or gender non-conforming people who have impacted your life. And how did you go about choosing them? Um, I just sort of sat and thought about it and then sort of lots of names came to mind and I have to sift through them and go, "Mm, really, that person? No, until I was left with the five. So, and I even changed my mind on one this morning. So when someone asks you, what's your favourite piece of music? And you think you know what your favourite piece of music is, but then five minutes later, you're like, oh no, it's not that one. It's this one. (laughs) Then, you know, two days later, you'll probably think, oh no, now I've I've always known what my favourite piece of music was. And, you know, (laughs) there'll be something different again. They just keep sifting through your mind and then you settle on the five. So. Mm. It's exactly that. It's also a kind of representation of who you are now and kind of thinking about how all these different women have kind of come to yeah. influence how you think of yourself and women and the world. Let's get going. So the first person that I'd love to talk to you about is someone who is a teenage or childhood icon and you have picked Alice Walker. Well, I've always liked to read and I've always been a person, like if I read one book of somebody's and it's really good, then I'll immediately think my next book will probably be a book of theirs. Mm-hmm. It's really disappointing when the next one is shit, but um, <laughs> that wasn't the case. So I always read, I think by the time I read them, it's probably mid to late seventies, and I know, like, I'm not sure when she wrote the Color Purple, but I think that was early seventies. And she wrote a book called Meridian, and she wrote a book called The Third Life of Grange Copeland, and they were, along with Maya Angelou, probably the first books I'd read about the black female experience. A lot of the uh, experiences are the same or you can relate to, or it's historical times that you've learnt about, but it's a personal record of those times. And her style is great, and The Colour Purple is all letters. The film is a narrative, but the book is, every letter is Celia, you write into God, and it starts with Dear God, and you find out about her life through those letters. So there's just the style of it was amazing, and the way it sort of just devastates your heart, all the things that happened to her. Um, Yeah, so I love The Colour Purple, and I loved another book of hers, Meridian, which I probably read about three times. And in my mind, I think it was on, I think I studied it for uh, an exam. It's probably for A-level English, which I never took. Yeah, so I read Meridian about three times, and then in 1990, I think, they were doing Meridian at the Contact Theatre in Manchester. And um, I was like, well, that's mine, that's mine. (laughs) And I had flu the day of my audition. And um, um, and I, it was Paulette Randall directing, who was ahead of me at Rose Bruford, who could have been another one of my women. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I got the part. So I played Meridian and I already loved the books and I felt like I knew Meridian. And then after the show finished, about six months later, we did it again for a couple of nights at Brixton Recreation Centre and Alice Walker came. <gasps> wow. And she cried and she loved it and she hugged us all. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing to, I was, I was about to say that's amazing to have made one of your icons cry, but I realise that sounds a bit sadistic of me. No, of course, because she wrote it. So you're like, you, you don't realise you're crying at your own work. Right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, yeah, she really loved it. And she just released a book. She just published a book called, I think it was called Possessing the Secret of Joy. But anyway, yes, she um, she came to see Meridian. I don't think it's ever been done on stage anywhere else. But, uh, yeah, so that's one of mine. 
You mentioned the importance of storytelling earlier. Um, in your career, you've worked in TV and film, radio and theatre, in all this kind of myriad ways of telling stories. Yeah. Do you feel connected in particular to any of those ways of telling stories or is it kind of the multitude of ways that you can tell stories that interest you? Yeah, no, I don't think, you know, you. There, I don't think there is a really one way to tell a story. I mean, there's a way to do a boring play. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think all stories are told by the teller, I suppose, or by the read by the reader. So you can I can read a book. Someone else can either read it and not like it or read it and get something totally different from it. But, um, yeah, they just uh, arrested me the way that they uh, the way that her books were written. Mm. Yeah. The play was the play was it was really good to inhabit the character as well. The next person I'd love to talk to you about is a fictional character and you have picked Aminata from The Book of Negroes. There are so many people I could have picked. Um, Just her story as the person, uh, the fictional person, the fictional character. Well, it's something, it's a slice of history. So it's set during slavery. Mm -hmm. It starts when she's a young girl and she's kidnapped with her father. Actually, I can't remember where they are in Africa, which is really bad. Anyway, they have to walk, I think, about three days to the coast and then they're put on ships and then she's taken to America and then she's a slave and her name is changed. And she's like about 11 at the beginning of the story. She, somebody teaches her to read and write. She grows up and then I think she's raped. Then she's brought to England. There were, um, another part of the story, the book that she's from is a book called The Book of Negroes and the there was a, an actual book called The Book of Negroes and it was in Nova Scotia and black slaves who had fought on the side of the British loyalists. They were given freedom and taken to Nova Scotia. And uh, she goes, oh, and she is, by that time, she's like the secretary. Oh, also she has a child and the child is sold away from her. She comes to England and when she leaves Africa, she vows that she'll go back. She comes to England, goes to Nova Scotia and then I think there's an uprising. Um, and she ends up going back to Africa. And as she's going back to Africa, she's, there are slave ships passing them on the oceans. And so it's a big, circular, amazing journey. And it's not, it's a triumphant story, but it's not like a happy story, even though obviously there are happy moments in her life. But, um, you know, just thinking, because you try and think back in history, it's not until somebody writes a historical novel, they weren't there. It's like when Hilary Mantle wrote Wolf Hall, she wasn't there. No. When you read it, you're like, Sounds like she was there. <laughs> her descriptions of Putney, her descriptions of London. And so the Book of Negroes is like that in that, you know, you do think, what was it like to be a slave? Because not all of the slaves would have been like unaware of their situation. And the fact that she was taught to read and write, which is a, a bit of a thing, I think, in my women as well. Alice Walker. Alice Walker was really bright, but when she was at school, the schools were segregated. And she, I think she won a scholarship, which was really, really lucky at the time. Yeah, Aminata, the Book of Negro, she was taught to read and write. Um, she eventually gets her freedom. I think that she is a grandma by the end of the book. But, you know, it's just a whole, it's an entire life. It's uh, And it's from a slice of history. And it's something, but yet you can identify with this person. And um, I suppose for every Black person that lives in america or britain then slavery is in your history so to have that story there yeah I, I can imagine her i can imagine her 
as a small child with her father, then being separated from her father, and then you know you cross the ocean, you don't know the language. That's a complete. That's not even a culture clash. That's a culture smash. Yeah. She's just and all the things that she has to learn and relearn throughout her life, and all the different societies and cultures that she lives in, um, and still coming out of it as a fairly independent, strong, intelligent woman. The way of describing it as a triumphant story is really interesting because often stories about black experience and the experience of black women is often portrayed as a perpetratingly downtrodden horrific experience with no levity important to tell stories because and you know to seek out other stories because you're you're denying yourself half of the stories of half of humanity and you're perpetuating status quo and you're also believing in the patriarchy so if you find the other stories, it just chips away at those things until you can just see it for the pile of nonsense that it really is. Yeah, the world can only be improved as people learn. Yeah, yeah. Because even if you don't have a cultural connection to it, so that makes I can move on to the to one of my other women, which is a, <laughs> she's also from a book. So she's the woman, she's the person that I've never met. So I don't have a cultural connection to her, mm. but. Obviously, if you're growing up in the West, if you had in, in um, religious studies at school, you would have learned about Judaism, Islam and Christianity. But the nature of the portrayal of Islam and Islamic people in the West is it's not even a stereotype. It's not even one sided. It's just it's just kind of ludicrous nonsense. Mm. And. Uh, so thinking about, again, about the two women I've already spoken about, Alice Walker and Aminata, the thing that Shirin Gull has in, has in common with them is that you can look across the world, you can look back in time. And because, uh, you know, as a girl, when you're growing up and you first come across those limitations or the things that you're supposed to do or the things that you're not supposed to do, and in your head, you're fighting against that. You know, you, it is a bit like, well, do I have to? No, I don't have to. I can do what I like. And, you know, and then you you read about feminism, especially the feminism of the 60s and 70s. And it seems like it was the first wave of feminism. And then you go back to the suffragettes. But then you can go back to women like Aminata, who I was just speaking about in the Book of Negroes, who is a woman who is determined to live. Is it about gender or is it about spirit? She just happened to be a woman, but she always wanted to somehow have control over her own fate so then in sharing goal the person who i never met who is from a book who is real her story is told in a book called afghanistan where god only comes to weep and she's a woman in a refugee camp the native of afghanistan who lived in the hills with her family in the early 70s when the soviet union invaded so the soviet union invaded her brothers and her uncles went off to fight and her father went off to fight in the resistance which meant that the girls could go to school so she was another person who was educated at at a time when women weren't usually educated so she went to school then her brother, one of her brothers uh, was a gambler and had run up loads of debt. So he sold her, I think, when she was, and part of me wants to say 11, but I'm not quite sure. But anyway, she was very young. She was sold and she was married. And I think the British also invaded Afghanistan and then the Americans invaded Afghanistan and then you get the Taliban and she at one point so they've gone from village to village they go to Kabul she then she lives in refugee camps she goes to Pakistan her husband is injured 
he's like takes years to recover he becomes a heroin addict she has to do all kinds of things obviously there's no contraception she's still having babies and she's there under the Taliban and you can't go out unless you're in the company of a man but she has no husband so it has to be her eldest son so she's just living this life and she's and she at one point is talking to the NCO and she says to her that she thinks about women on the other side of the world. So it's amazing to me that women on the other side of the world can just get up and wear whatever they want. They can just put on a miniskirt. The same way that we might think, God, it's amazing to me that how do you live like that? How do they, you know, so we, it was just brilliant that the female experience, it's not always the same, but it has the same threads running through it. And Mm. it just humanizes everything. Just, you know, the, the, the image that the images that come out of Afghanistan, it's always suicide bombings, it's always women wailing, it's always it always all just seems so helpless. And this one was, was dire and beyond ridiculous and tragic. And she just kept on keeping on. It was um it's amazing. Um I'm not quite sure what happened to her. I did once had to try to find out what happened to her after the end of the book. But um she was alive and she was strong and and I think in the book as well she has to marry her own daughter off at one point she marries her to a Taliban officer yeah all the things that she has to do and you know she didn't lay down and die she didn't she might have lived in an unequal society but she wasn't unequal she was more than their equal she was strong and brave and a mother but yeah I think the thing that uh, that a lot of the well all of women I think have in common is a it's a theme of education no education in situations where it wasn't a given that they were going to be educated it wasn't a given that they were ever going to learn to read and Shirin Gold taught herself to read I think she says in the book that she taught herself to read three and a half books but she taught herself to read yeah so um she's the person that I've never met but I've never forgotten her name and I walked into a charity shop one day and I'm always like look at all the books and then and the cover of it I just thought this is either going to be really good or it's going to be shit <laughs> and it was just a, a blue burqa but I didn't realize that the blue were the burqas that the women wore under the Taliban. And also the title, Afghanistan, Where God Only Comes to Weep. Sounds like it's going to be a really, really bad book of poetry. (laughs) But yeah, it was amazing. It was one of the best books I've ever read. I think this probably will also go for your, the next two women. But I love the idea that you're saying that you can, by reading about all the different experiences of being a woman so whether it's a contemporary woman in a refugee camp or somebody hundreds of years ago escaping slavery or the characters in Alice Walker's books they have such different experiences of womanhood but by reading that you can then understand what womanhood kind of as a whole is yeah I mean it can be a picture of it as in all of these women were in strict patriarchal societies or you can read it because sometimes I think about feminism and stuff like that. And like we call it feminism, but I think it's just, it's just in every woman that we know that we're equal or even sometimes more than equal. So it's just the desire to have at what we deserve, not to be given our rights. It's almost like asserting your rights anyway in your heart, even if it's silently, you know, you know, a woman living under the Taliban knows who she is a woman living under the Taliban does not all of a sudden start to see herself as only worth half a man even if circumstances of her life tell her that you know it might be best to seek out a man to go out the door with because they haven't you know morality police and that yeah it's just about that feminism is not something which you pick up and wear like a mantle Mm. and it's not even feminism really I mean I think it's just yeah the, the assertion of who you are in your time and place 
and it's in most women. The next category I'd love to move on to is somebody who is no longer alive and you have picked Amelia Bassano. The more you read, there's such scant information left about her, but the information that is left is tantalising because she was born in the late 15th century. She was possibly of North African and Jewish descent and definitely Italian. Her father was a court musician in the court of Elizabeth. She's the first recorded poet. She had a book published when women didn't do anything. Women didn't mm. even have their own money. She was also educated. Her father died and she went to live with another woman, with a countess who believed in educating young women. So she was taught Latin and she was taught to read and write. The more I read about her, the argument that she wrote Shakespeare's plays is just, it, it just sings out as a more true than not true. Really? So they were contemporaries. Shakespeare knew her. She was the mistress of the Lord Chamberlain at the time when she was 13. She spoke Italian. She was Jewish. She was in the court. She was a favourite of Queen Elizabeth. Shakespeare didn't speak Italian. Shakespeare knew nothing of Jewish life. If you weren't a Jew, you didn't know about Jewish life. Shakespeare didn't go to court. All the kings and queens and and, um, scenes and the court knowledge that are in Shakespeare's plays, he would not have had access to. She went to Italy. She knew Italy. You've got two gentlemen at Verona. You've got countless plays set in Italy, Italian references. We know, we read Shakespeare and we take from the plays and we confer all of this sensibility and intelligence upon this man who, it has been said many times, could not possibly have written all of those plays in his lifetime. So maybe some of them were his. But the more I read about her, and the fact that she wrote sonnets, the fact that he refers to the Dark Lady. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really interesting argument. And just imagine if it was one of the greatest frauds of all time. If those plays were written by a woman who uh, not many women could read, she published a book of poetry. And the book, the book that she published, it's regarded as like one of the first feminist tracts because she basically has written this epic poem about Adam and Eve saying, well, if Adam thinks he was so great, then why did he just, why did he eat the apple just because Eve said so? It's a bit like, you had your brain, Adam. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He told me to eat the apple, so I ate it. And now look what's happened to us. It's a bit like, really, mate? <laughs> she takes it apart like that, which I suppose could have been seen as heretical and heresy at the time but it's also very clever and it's all like you know when you think of christianity it's full of fucking nonsense like that we are just like really it's all our fault it's all his fault you know what yeah. I mean? so um another person who was educated early who sort of outgrew her circumstances who kind of grew her own life when she she became pregnant by the Lord Chamberlain and he married her off. When he died, when her husband died, she opened a school for girls. And uh, yeah, and she taught there. You know, and this was like in the early 1600s. And she's like, she's not, she's of society, but she's obviously always held apart. So um, yeah, it's just another fascinating woman who basically just, you know, that phrase, you can't keep a good one. Now. And also you played her in the play Amelia and there's an amazing speech which I've watched so many times on YouTube that you do because there were three Amelias 
and you were playing the oldest Amelia. And there was a line when you said, I'm six, 76 years old and I'm holding in me a muscle memory of every woman who came before me. Yeah. I, and, she, and I think she then goes on and, and says something along the lines of that this is for Eve, for every Eve, and it will be about all the women that come after me. And yeah, it's this really united idea of the variety, but the united sense of being a woman. And like when you were playing that, when you knew that she was this real person that had had all these experiences and that yeah, potentially has written all of Shakespeare plays, yeah. how, how was that to play a part like that? Like, so uh, the, the, um, she was the mistress of uh, Lord Hunsdon, who was the Lord Chamberlain. Lord Chamberlain built the Globe and we were performing it at the Globe. She lived around Bankside. She was uh, she was baptised, I think, in St Botolph's Church, which is in Holborn. So you can walk around London and you're walking where she walked. We were in the Globe and, you know, her contemporaries put on plays there or, you know, on a site near there. Um, so then you talk about in the play, in the speech, holding in me the memory of all the women who've gone before. It was just like standing on that stage. It was just so resonant. And once I read that speech and it was like, I'd read that speech before. And when I did that speech, I was like, cause I know what it's like to be fucking angry, mm. angry, just angry. Like sometimes the world for women, it, it's just shit. It's, um, and, you know, the continued, you know, how can we still be having, this is a frivolous thing, but not so frivolous, stories in the newspaper about a newsreader who says, oh, my God, I've just found out that everyone's being paid three quarters of a million pounds more than me. What's the difference between her and them? She's a woman and they're a man. Hollywood stars, you know, getting paid a million pounds more than the leading lady. And it's not just a little bit of money. And also, it's fucking rude, so to keep swearing. It's no, no. Rude. It's rude. And it just, you know, it staggers me that these things still happen and that there are still um, expectations around us and there are still places, oh, God, I don't know. You know, the way we saw President Trump speak to female reporters and no Mm. one, not one, we know they're all reporters, but what, can nobody else in the room say, excuse me, mate, you're being rude. Don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Like, who, how? He was the president of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, it's just, it's disgusting. That speech was, um, you know, you just, all those things that you kind of keep a lid on sometimes, or just things that make you boil with rage. It's like you're addressing that directly and like saying that to all those women in the audience, like, yeah, angry. Because also women get angry, but we don't get angry like, like how we can get angry. And that's not good mm-hmm. to, to hold that inside. Like if someone pisses you off, they need to know, especially if they're disrespecting you or holding you down or holding you back or just talking to you like they think they know who you are, but they don't know who you are. Mm. And also, however you want to speak to me, even if you don't like me, you don't have to be rude. Yeah. So that speech is that's what that's all about. And the fact that, you know, I mean, last year on Twitter, there was a was it Twitter? I just read about some International Men's Day and I was like, if you have International Men's Day, means that no one understands the point, especially men, of International Women's Day. And all these men were like, oh, it's for men having mental health problems. Well, fine. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have that, but call it Men's Mental Health Awareness Day. Because if you have International Men's Day, it assumes that there is some equal 
and just as deep grievance and hurt and malignant vein that runs through men's lives as the mm. same through women's lives and there just isn't yeah. I mean, all men have it easy but you know what I mean you're men you think mm. around the world so then that's that's another bit in there that was another bit that I loved was the bit at the beginning when you you say something like you say that we hate men like you like yeah. we hang you like we yeah, yeah. Um, like we rape you I mean there's just there's just that in there like you know sexual harm can be done to human beings of any gender but women are raped and to fucking to rape a woman one it's just like there's no hope for that man because you know sexual intercourse is a beautiful thing and if he thinks he's having sexual intercourse that's not what he's having and it's just i don't know the fact that we are still campaigning about it that women are still having to educate men, that we are still having to explain that no means no, that men take it so lightly that they they just can't see Mm. that they're perpetrating. You know, it's just, it's just that. It's just that women, women don't, we don't, we don't walk around seeking men to kill them just because they are perceiving some sort of freedom, Mm. freedom, which we're not allowing them to have. Whereas, you know, women are killed for that. Women are stoned for stepping out of line, for having sex. Uh, women are killed in honour killings. Women were burnt as witches. Women are reviled and outcast still in some places of the world for having babies out of wedlock, for for even fucking enjoying sex. So there's a lot to be angry about. So, mm. you know, I could just step into that speech and the speech was already in me. Yeah, even watching it, it feels like a relief. There's no part of it that's going, oh, we feel this, but you know, it's not quite like that. There's no hesitation in it and there's no reservedness. It's almost joyous watching it, even though it's not a joyful speech. It's like, oh, it's... Yeah, because I think sometimes you, or maybe like having more than writing those words, you then have those words to articulate something which you never knew maybe needed to be expressed or articulated. I mean... And obviously you can't be angry all the time, but it's good to just acknowledge that you are angry because I think a lot of us, we think that we're not angry and we think that we can get on and we do get on and we smash glass ceilings and, you know, glass ceilings are another thing which probably was invented by a man just to, even the notion of the fact that there's a glass ceiling, there is no glass ceiling, the sky's the fucking limit. We have to remind ourselves of these things and not not live under these prescribed circumstances saying that we can't. So I'd love to move on now to your final figure that you've chosen. And this is somebody you know personally. And this is Thelma Perkins, who is your mum. Yeah, my mum. So me and my mum, you know, I love my mum. I think sometimes we've had a bit of a difficult relationship. But my mum is like the most like amazing person. Like she's so organized and she's so strong and she's she was born in 1942 in Birmingham. She's the third in eight children. You know, my mum's mixed race. Her mum is white. Her mum is from a family of Lithuanian Jews. So her grandparents, my great grandparents, came here from Lithuania at the turn of the century. My grandma met my granddad, who's Trinidadian. She had she already had a daughter who was white, the eldest, and then she had three mixed-race children. 
she ended up putting my mum and her eldest two brothers into care. So my mum went into a children's home when she was a baby in Chislehurst in Kent. And it was run by like the Christian Mission to the Jews, which probably wouldn't be allowed now. So it basically means that they take the Jewish children and these Christians. Oh, God. But she grew up um, with some children, I think children from the Kinder Transport, because they were children from some children from Europe. And it was a home for Jewish children. Um, and then when she was 12, because her mum said, oh, it was like too kind of hard bringing up mixed race babies in Birmingham in the 40s um and then she met another guy and she had three more kids who were also mixed race so when my mum was 12 she brought my mum back home my mum left I don't think think my mum had left school by the time she was 14 but she became a nurse had us lot met my dad moved to London and then when she was older she always wanted to be a teacher so while I was a kid my mum like she worked nights and she worked in the day and at one point she was a home help which is a bit like a social worker but they don't have them anymore I don't think so if like in the middle of the night a baby's going into care my mum would go out she would get the baby take them to the foster parent she would uh, attend old people having emergencies in their homes all the while bringing up us lot all the while making all of our clothes sewing them knitting all of our jumpers like growing vegetables in the garden like, I think of my mum and I'm like, I can never keep my house clean. I'm sad. <laughs> but everything was always washed up and she always cooked dinners, dinners, breakfast, lunches, everything. She always took us out, like my childhood. We were always going on day trips to the beach or to the zoo or to camping. Um, she worked at our brownies. She was the cook when we went to brownie camp. Um, and then when she was about 40, she went back to college and took her O-level English and level maths in order to get a degree in order to become a teacher because she wanted to work with special needs kids which she did she also learned to drive she also learned to swim this is all in her 40s and uh yeah she's like an inspiration because we're not we both we share a love of reading which she obviously gave to me and singing my mum always used to sing but we're quite, we're very different people but yeah my mum was a great mum she also had you know adversity and again um you know educated herself mm. in order to further her life she wrote a book and when she was um her and her sister were searching for information about her dad it's called in search of mr mckenzie and they found out that he was a pan-africanist and he came here in the late 30s to a pan-african conference in manchester he wasn't around i think he'd gone back to trinidad so when she went to trinidad to do some research because her dad had been born there, the Trinidad government said, oh, well, you can have citizenship. So now she lives in Tobago with my dad, which is amazing as well. That is and, amazing. Yeah, but she's just like, and she still knits and she still writes. And her book was published. And uh, I think it was published by Women's Press, actually, who also published Alice Walker, because the Women's Press was a big thing. Women's Press and Virago back in the 70s because they were female-led publishing houses. So there's another whole host of women there who mm. In those books I probably wouldn't have read Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and people like that and my mum was the person who gave me those books in the first place and um you know we've had our ups and downs but she's always been behind me yeah she's a, she's like oh she's like Wonder Woman and mm. when I come there now she's still like you know those women who like doesn't matter how many people are staying in the house you you get up to go and do some washing and your mum's already got a wash on. In fact, she's already hung out a line of washing. <laughs> she's got washing on and she's like, I don't know, 
made my dad's coffee and done something else and is asking us what we want to do for the day. You know, she's like, she's tireless. Yeah, she plays a big game of Scrabble. That's, <laughs> when you have somebody who gives you all these books that are not just books for entertainment, but books to kind of learn about the world and yourself and the people around you, was that also part of your childhood did you kind of talk about yeah, well it's part of our relationship and my sister as well so if one of us reads a book like I'll tell them like I'll say no I've just read this book and then my mum and my sister will both say I'm having it next so who, <laughs> who gets the book next and then it's like I lend out books and I don't necessarily remember who I've lent them to but my mum lends out a book and she's like I know I lent it to you have you lost it and I'm like no I haven't but I've got it <laughs> in my house so I don't know the other day I was looking on the bookshelves and I came across this book that she asked me for <laughs> about a year ago. And I was like, I haven't got it, Mum. I gave it back to you. And then I was like, oh, there it is on my bookshelf. But yeah, we often, we read the same books and then, um, so we have the same references. So yeah, we share that. We share that a lot. We still share it now. So my mum's like, I'll tell her at the weekend or something that I've just read a really good book. And she's like, I will save that for me. And then, or what her and my sister do is they say, don't give it to Claire first, because I get a book and I immediately snap it open, bend the spine of it. <laughs> don't use a bookmark. I always bend the pages. Like when I've read a book, it looks like it's been read. When they've read a book, it just looks like someone's just held it. So they're all like, no, don't give it to Claire. She'll read it in the bath and the pages will get wavy. But it's a book. That's what it's for. <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I love to look at my bookshelf and be able to like see that I've read it that I've read it yeah and then you recognize the spines and you're like because I had to get rid of some books the other day and so I and there are books on my bookshelf it's very rare I start a book and I don't finish it um but some of them they're just like I know I'm never going to read that or I read it and I was like that just so fucking annoyed me I'm not reading it again but some books books that I've given away I'll be in a charity shop and I'll see the book and I think I want that on my bookshelf so I'm just going to buy it again <laughs> in my mum's house even though she's in Tobago there are still books on the shelf which was on the shelves when I was a kid Really? Yeah, it's nice to have those books. Some of them have got, this book belongs to Claire Perkins, you know. Really. <laughs> do you, because you have children, do you, is there anything that you consciously take from the way that you were brought up into the way that you bring your children up? Because I don't think it's conscious, but like me and my sister are really close. My sister just lives up the road and she's got three kids. And when they were growing up, I mean, I think unconsciously you just do the things, yeah. some of the things that, you know, your parents did, the things that you didn't like, you don't do. But we always go to the plot, like my dad loved playing rounders and uh, we go camping. I'm actually taking my grandkids camping in about two weeks time. So my granddaughter loves to read. My sons love to read. My daughter reads a bit. But, um, you know, reading is in there. My granddaughter, she's actually just turned six and she loves reading already. Words. So it's just great. You know what I mean? You have that as a, well, it's always a, it's a continuous conversation, isn't it? And then you're like... So when we're going camping, I'm taking the youngest two and their friend. And I'm like, oh, what books am I going to take? I think I'm going to take a book of fairy tales. I don't know if they've had traditional fairy tales. And I used to love fairy tales. Because mm. um, we always went to, my mum always went to the library as well. So going to the library with my mum and then her letting me choose books out of the adult library was uh, brilliant. That's such a nice continuation of the love of reading that's gone from your mum all the way down to your granddaughter. Granddaughter, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's great. It's really fun. What do you think of the idea that there's something about having somebody you know who you really look up to and respect that can be both a bit intimidating but also really reassuring that it's you've yeah. got this person that you know that you could achieve that and be yeah. like that because they're so close to you, but also it can feel a bit alarming being like, oh, my gosh, 
I should be able to do yeah, that. When it's a teacher or somebody, you sort of you know them on one level, but when it's like your mum or your sister or your auntie or like a close female relative, then you often know the heroic side. I think yeah, that's what I wanted to say. I think my mum's like a hero. She's like a hero. I'm like, you know, I've done some things in my life, but all of the actual physical work and making opportunities when the opportunities weren't there. Whereas I think I sort of found opportunities that were beginning to be there for women by the time I was a young woman. Yeah, that you see the heroic side and you also see the mundane side and the, you know, the long old trudge side, you know, working nights. You know, I'm saying it's heroic, but I I remember my mum always falling asleep on the settee as well because, you know, she was working nights, she was looking after us free. She never missed a parents' evening or anything like that. And yeah, I mean, my parents worked really hard for us and they gave us, yeah, I had a great childhood. So, um, in that sense, and like, what more can you ask for if you have that? It's like mm-hmm. a massive trampoline. Uh, yeah, I mean, of all the women I know, I would say, yeah, my mum. And I know some incredible women. <laughs> <laughs> so I think... That brings us to the end, unless there's kind of anything else that you want to add. It's nice talking to you. It's nice the way it all sort of, I realised things that they all, the, all they all had in common as I was talking. I hadn't really linked it all up. I'm glad. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so kind of you to talk to me. And um, I'll put it in the podcast notes, the link to your Amelia speech, because okay. I think that's just one of the best things I've watched. It's so great. Um, yeah, thank you so much. This episode was actually recorded a really long time ago and it was so much fun going back and listening to it afresh. Since then, Outlaws has been released, which also stars my dad as the back of Christopher Walken's head. Um, And now she's currently starring in The Wife of Wilsdon, which I believe is sold out, but I have heard amazing things. So if you manage to get a ticket, I would definitely recommend it because everything Claire does is brilliant. Thank you so much to Claire for all of her time and kindness and wise words. And thank you so much for listening. If you fancy giving us a review or sharing the episode, that would be amazing. See you next time. Mm